As you all know, we had the calendrical coincidence this year of the season of Lent beginning on Valentine's Day. I was not the only one who had some fun reflecting on the amusing incongruity of the seriousness and solemnity of Ash Wednesday and the, the frivolity of Valentine's roses and chocolates. Some priests I know uh, considered administering their ashes in the shape of hearts on people's foreheads, and some clever soul even created real sets of candied hearts that you could order that said things like, you are dust, and repent. But as we went through our services on Ash Wednesday, and were marked as inescapably mortal, confessing our sins at length, I realized that despite the seeming incongruity, Valentine's Day is actually the perfect day for us to start the season of Lent, because even though we spend a lot of time talking about prayer and penitence and fasting, Lent is really all about love. Allow me to explain. And to do so, I'd like to start by offering a, a bit of poetry. For I find that poems are often the best vehicle to hold seeming incongruities up to the light and notice more clearly connections that may exist between them. And there's one poem in particular, a favorite of mine, that is a perfect illustration of the kind of love that the season of Lent is all about. It's a poem by George Herbert. Herbert was an English priest and poet in the early 1600s, and he produced just a single collection of poems in English, which were all written as his private devotions. It wasn't until right before he died that he sent a copy of the collection to a friend, asking him to read it, and if he thought it worthy, to go ahead and publish it after he died. And if not, he said, just go ahead and burn it. Luckily, his friend had some sense, for these poems have become some of the most celebrated in all of English literature. And one of the most famous, and the one that came to mind to me, for me this week, is entitled simply, Love Three. It comes at the end of the collection, serving as something of a summation not just of Herbert's poetic expressions, but also his belief. And it is a poem that beautifully brings into one room both love and penitence. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back guilty of dust and sin. A quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here, love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand, and smiling did reply, Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them, 
Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. There is much to admire in this little poem. But for me, the power resides in the way that Herbert is able to express both the sense of inadequacy that the speaker feels about himself, and at the same time, the gentle but relentless love of Jesus, who in this poem he calls simply love. From the opening lines, when love bids him welcome, the poet finds himself drawing back, keenly aware of his dust and sin. However, love is not put off, but instead draws nearer, sweetly wondering, well, what's wrong? Do you need something? A guest, he answers, worthy to be here. Love says, you, you shall be he. You are worthy to be here. Me? But I am unkind. I'm, I'm ungrateful. I am so ashamed, he says, of who I am. I can't even look at you. And you can feel him start to try to, to pull away. But love comes even closer and won't let him flee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, Who made the eyes but I? Yes, true, but I have wrecked them. I have marred them. Just leave me alone, the speaker counted. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. Somewhere far away from here. You can imagine him thinking, for I don't deserve to be in this room. Oh, but I took care of all that. Love says, don't you remember? And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? Well then, at least. The speaker counters, I should be the one then serving you, right? At every step, at every point, the speaker tries to resist or evade or explain just how unlovable or unworthy he is. And at every point, love steps over the objection with a tenderness and an insistence that eventually wears him down and wins the day. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I can sit and eat. Finally, finally, he gives in to the gift of love and allows himself to be loved so deep, so profoundly that any sense of Guilt or shame is banished by love's warm embrace. Lent 
is about awakening to and accepting the extent of God's love for you. And like in this poem, God's love is relentless. Even more relentless than your sin. Your faults and failings exist. But God already knows that. Because God knows you. And yet you are called and welcomed and seated at his insistence, all the same, treated as a guest worthy to partake of his heavenly banquet. For to God, your sins do not diminish your worth. Because to God, you are beloved before you are anything else. And that is essential to remember before setting out into the wilderness of Lent. After all, that's how it began for Jesus, too, before he sets out on his own journey in the wilderness, which our 40 days of Lent are meant to recall, God takes the bold step of entering the story in order to assure Jesus of his belovedness. After his baptism, a voice came from heaven saying, You are my Son, the Beloved, with you I am well pleased. It's only after that that Jesus goes out into the wilderness. That is his starting point. Knowing in no uncertain terms that he is beloved. And just as Jesus' time of fasting and prayer begins with that grounding in love, so too should ours, because we are beloved by God before we are anything else. Lent starts there. From that foundation of unbreakable belovedness. And once we know ourselves, to be beloved. That knowledge calls forth from us a desire, a desire to become someone who reflects that level of love in our lives, who lives and loves as Christ loved us, someone who loves like God loves, with as much readiness and relentlessness. But we struggle to live up to that level of love. And that is why the season of Lent is not just about experiencing the extent of God's love for you. It is also about finding the things that are getting in the way. Holding you back from exhibiting that kind of love to others. This is what leads us to ask questions like, what might I need to give up? in order to make that happen? And at the same time, what practices might I need to commit to more fully to better show God's love to the world? In asking these questions, we've come round to those well-worn Lenten disciplines of fasting and prayer and alms, but we're coming to them by a different road and for a different purpose. Starting our Lenten disciplines from a, an experience of beloved, 
means that the motivation for those changes is not shame or guilt or self-imposed suffering. It is a longing to be able to better respond to and express the kind of heavenly love which we have experienced so profoundly. And yes, adjustments to one's life are always difficult. Attending to pruning that needs to happen or recalling and confessing our sins and our mistakes in our lives is bound to be painful. But suffering and pain are not the point. Love is. If we enter Lent from a place of unequivocal belovedness, then we want to repent. We want to amend our lives, not because we hope to somehow earn God's favor or avoid God's wrath, but because doing so helps us to better embody the profound and limitless love of God. A love that calls us, seeks us, seats us, feeds us, no matter what. That is what Lent is all about. Amen.